0: Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. If you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles, that's on page 888. Not as good as 777, but not nearly as bad as 666. One person laughing, that's okay. Thank you, Ivy. John 3. Last week we talked about God's love. Not something that Presbyterians are all that accustomed to talking about, but we talked about God's love and how it was for the life of the world that He sent His Son to rescue the world. This week we get to, uh, we are reintroduced to an old character, to John the Baptist. We're going to see his, uh, this is really the last time that we'll see him in the Gospel. John chapter 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now, John, the apostle, is going to make it clear that Jesus actually was not baptizing himself. His disciples were baptizing. Um, But he remained there with them and was baptizing. Verse 23, John also... This is John the Baptist. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim, because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look. rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony affirms this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Lord, we ask again. We ask, really, just as we have sung, that you would be our vision. That you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things here In your word. Really I pray Lord that we would see Jesus. That we would meet him. And that we would be forever changed by him. Lead us Lord to the very very thing that John wants us to do. And that is to believe. We ask all this in Jesus name. Amen. Uh, so a mentor of mine, uh, a seminary professor, once told us in class, he said, your job as a pastor is to make sure that people die well. Sounds a little bit depressing, um, especially if that's your purpose in life, is to make sure that people die well. But, but think, about, think about what he was saying. Because it's something that we're all, it's, it's inevitable. We're all headed in that direction. Whether you're 6, 16, 96, you will, you will die. Your heart will stop beating. Your lungs will stop breathing. And so, your religious views won't stop it. Uh, your, your politics won't matter. Whether you ran 10 miles yesterday or you just sat in front of the TV, you'll still die. Whether whether you are all organic vegetarian or whether you eat fully processed desserts for every meal, you're still going to die. Now, some of those decisions are going to affect how you die and maybe even how soon. But the fact remains that all of us will die. And so the question then is, what does it mean to die well? What is a, what is a good death? Uh, and I think, and, and really, what is a good death is probably, the flip side of that coin is, what is, it, what is it to have a good life? And I think we have an example here in John the Baptist. He gives us a great picture of what it means to die well. <clears throat> now, Kevin, what do you mean? There's nothing about death in this passage. Well, look at Verse 24. John, the the apostle, the gospel writer, gives us a little note. He says, John had not yet been put in prison. Let me tell you how John's life ends. John is a prophet. That means he's a messenger sent from God, and he is sent to challenge the status quo. That's what good prophets do. But here's the problem with challenging the status quo. People in power don't like you. People in power don't like to have their power challenged, and that's what John did. He challenged Herod the king. He told him, Herod, it's wrong for you to have your brother's wife. That's, that's immoral. You don't, that, that's wrong. And so Herod put him in prison. And then his wife, that he shouldn't have had to begin with, went a step further and actually had his head cut off and brought to her on a platter. So that's how John's life ends. Maybe that's not how you want to go. So what does it mean? And that, was that a good death? What does it mean to die well? That's how John died. And my point is it's not, it's not so much how John died, but what he was believing when he died. And we have a picture of that here in this passage. These are some of the last words of John the Baptist that we have. And what, and what they tell us is this, that if you want your life to matter it must be wrapped up in the greater life of the Son. If you want your life to matter, and I think most of us do, it must be wrapped up in the greater life of the Son. If that is true, then you will die well. That means two things. One, you have to have a good view of yourself. You have to have a healthy view of yourself. That's what we see. John has a healthy view of himself. Let's look and see what's going on. Jesus uh, has left Jerusalem. They've moved into the countryside of Judea, and his disciples are baptizing. And so now you have two groups of people who are giving this, um, this baptism for repentance, this baptism that prepares people for the kingdom. That's what John's baptism was, and that's what it appears like Jesus' disciples are doing as well. And then there's this debate and we're not really sure what it's a debate like. I mean, we, we know that it's a debate over purification. And so maybe the conversation went something like, whose baptism is better? What are you really doing lot with, with this baptism? What do you mean? But what we do know is this. That the content of the debate doesn't, doesn't matter, but what it leads John's disciples to do. It opens their eyes, and what they realize is that Jesus is more popular. Jesus is becoming more popular than John, and they're concerned, right? The, the boss, John, their boss, is not, is not seeing as many people as they are. So if it's, a, if it's a numbers game, Jesus is winning, and they are losing. And so they're worried about that. Their boss is missing a step. He used to be the main event, right? He was the talk of the town. But now there's this new kid on the block, this Jesus. And more people are attracted to him than are attracted to John. And so they come to John, and it's clear that their pride is overwhelming their sense of kingdom mission. They may not even really have been on a mission, but they are certainly worried. They come to John and they say, Rabbi, that guy who is with you, they don't even give him a name, they just call him He who is with you on the other side of the Jordan. Yeah, 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 you said something important about him. We've clearly forgotten that. More people are going to see him. He's baptizing too. We're missing out. We're losing popularity. These guys are worried about their pride. They're worried about what it was that gave them significance. And so they come to John... And John reveals that he's actually not all that worried about that. In fact, he's overjoyed. And he tells them a couple of things. The first thing he says is this. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So the first thing that John that, that shows us John has a healthy, a good view of himself, a biblical view of himself, is he says, Guys, remember the giver. Everything I have my ministry, down to the food I eat and the clothes that I wear, even the people who came to us for a time. Everything I have is given me from the Father in heaven. And it goes the same for you and for me. The first step to a good, healthy, biblical view of yourself is to realize, as we talked about in Sunday school, right, that you did not build this. That what you have, you received from heaven. You received from another. God is the giver. Remember the giver. See, John's not worried about missing a step or losing popularity. He's not worried about how many likes he's got on his Facebook page. He's not worried about how many people are responding to his Twitter feed. He's not concerned whether or not he has any followers on Instagram Like three-quarters of the room right now is like, dude, what? Um, It's all right. It resonates with somebody, okay? Because John knows what is good. And he knows where it comes from. And everything else falls into place after that. John remembers the giver. But he also knows this. He knows his place. He knows his place in the grand scheme. He says, now listen guys, you yourselves bear me witness, I said I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I have been sent before him. Guys, remember I told you this, okay, that I'm just the messenger who runs out in front of the king. I'm just the guy with the flags waving, saying, hey, the king is coming, make way, take a knee, get out of the way, bow down. Whatever, whatever you're going to do, do it because the king is coming. That's who I am. I'm just the messenger. I'm, I'm not the king himself. I'm not the Messiah. And then he uses this illustration. He, he uses the illustration of the best man. Verse 29, the one who has the bride, he's the bridegroom, The friend of the bridegroom who stands and listens for him, he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. And what John is talking about, and this was more so in Jesus' day than in our day, but the best man, his job was just to make sure the wedding went off without a hitch. It was his job to make sure everything was in place, that the groom got there, that the bride was already there, that, that they didn't have probably have florists and stuff like that, but that all those arrangements were taken care of. He's just a middleman. He's not, he's not the show. The show is the bride and the groom. His job is just to make sure that those two come together. And once that happens, he's done. He doesn't try to, to insert himself into the picture. He doesn't try to take the spotlight off of where it belongs. In fact, he's the one aiming the spotlight. He's the one in the background. He's the one saying, this is where your focus belongs. That's the best man. That's the groom's friend. That's John the Baptist. And so his whole joy, all of his joy is wrapped up in doing his job. And once his job is done, he can say, This joy of mine is now complete. Don't you long for that day when you can can say, This joy of mine is now complete. When you can actually say, My job is finished. But John isn't just, he's not just using this whole wedding thing as an illustration. He's actually picking up on a biblical theme, a theme from the Old Testament, a theme, surprise, surprise, that the prophets used. And the image is this, God is the husband and his people are the bride, is the bride. The Subject verb agreement doesn't quite work. God is the husband who chases, more than that, God is the faithful husband who chases and woos his unfaithful wife. If you want to read something really challenging, something really shocking, Go to Ezekiel 16. We're not going to read it today. In fact, parents, if you want to read it to your kids, I encourage that you read it out, that you read it to yourself first before you read it out loud. You I think you would be shocked to see how God describes his relationship uh, with his wayward people, the the kind of language the Bible uses. Um, we we, We read a passage from Isaiah in our Assurance of Pardon, where God calls himself the faithful husband. Hosea 2. After, after the wife has run away, God says this, I will marry you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Isaiah 62, You shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called my delight, is in her. And your land married. For the Lord delights in you. Can you say that? Honestly, do you feel the, do you feel the weight, the preciousness of that promise? The Lord delights in you. And your land shall be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The way that God feels about his people is wedding day affection. Wedding day joy. Some of us have to cast our memories a good ways back to remember Maybe the joy and affection of that day. But it's a happy day. It's a good day. And John says, guys, stop freaking out. Don't let your pride get in the way of realizing that this is the day we've been waiting for. The groom is here. He's here to marry his bride. He's here to take her home. Don't lose sight of that. Don't be so wounded. Don't be so so eaten up with pride and envy and so worried about what people think that you miss the fact that our job is done. Our joy is complete. You're worried about my popularity fading and Jesus's increasing. But this is what must happen. I must decrease he must increase that must in John's gospel talks about God's unstoppable plan John's not saying I should decrease and he should increase John is saying this is going to happen fellas he must increase that is the plan all of these things that you're worried about me losing ground him gaining ground that's what has to happen because he's the groom and I'm just the best man When he and his bride head down the sidewalk and get all of the rice and all of the cheers and get into the car and drive away, I'm left standing at the altar and that's okay because I've seen through what I needed to see through. John understands his place in the world. He knows what has to happen. His whole mission in life was to point to someone else. He was never meant to occupy center stage. He was never meant to be the center of attention. And you know what? Neither am I. And neither are you. Here's the difference. John was confident in the fact that if after his beheading, no one remembered him, he was perfectly fine with that. His joy was complete. If history never remembers... Kevin Corley, will I be able to say at the end of my life that my joy is complete, that I ran the race, that I did what I was called to do, that I understood my purpose in the world? Am I okay with saying he must increase and I must decrease? To understand that is to die well, to have your life defined by the right things. John's life is defined not by his accomplishments though they are great. History has not forgotten John the Baptist. Odds are history will forget me and it will probably forget you. Can you rejoice? Can you rejoice in simply playing your part? Or do you keep trying to take center stage? Do you keep trying to outshine the main actor in the play? John's life is not defined by his own greatness or what he perceives to be his greatness. In fact, he didn't even know how great he was. Jesus would follow that later. No, John's life is defined by the greatness of another, Jesus himself. John plays his part and then exits the stage just when the script tells him to. But this passage really isn't about John. In fact, if we just finished with John, then we have missed exactly what John would want us to see. The reason John can step aside, the reason he can even have a good view, a healthy biblical view of himself, is because he has a greater view of Jesus. And so, if what you have heard me say heretofore has been okay, I need to be like John the Baptist, which means I need to devote my life to something greater and not be center stage. I can do that. John is here to be an example. But if that's as far as it goes, you will miss the point. Because, look, the, the worst plays, if you've ever been to a play, the worst ones are where the side actors or where the support actors actually upstage the main actors, Right where the cast, or the, the, uh, the extras, overwhelm the people that are really supposed to be the focused. That's not a good play. And yet that's what we aim to do all the time. The reason I can't take a sidestep, the reason I keep trying to occupy center stage, is because of my view of Jesus is too small. I think I'm more important than I really am. And I need a greater view of Jesus. And in order to have that perspective... In order to have the perspective that John has, I have to see what John sees. Look at verse 31. Consider these claims about Jesus. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. So what he's saying is this, that Jesus is superior because he's not from here. John is from the earth. And he's limited by the earth. He can only speak of earthly things. And, y'all, that's true of every single one of us. Every, every voice that you would listen to is limited by the fact that it is born inside the box. Right? It's you know, commonplace to say we want to think outside the box. I got news. You can't think too far outside the box. All right? Because all you know is the box. And that's true of every religious teacher in the history of man. It's true of Buddha. It's true of Joseph Smith. It's true of Muhammad. It's true of uh, the guy who founded the Jehovah's Witnesses. Every other religious figure in the world is of the earth. They're from here. And if they say anything true, it is still truth limited by the earth. Only one person can claim to be from somewhere else, and that's Jesus. And he claims to be from above. He's the only one who comes from outside the box. And so he is superior. He comes from above all. He claims a different birth. And in that way, he can claim more than any other voice you would listen to more than any other religious teacher, more than any other philosopher, more than Miley Cyrus, Kanye West, Donald Trump, Ben Carson, whatever voices form your world, if you are listening to them over against the voice of Jesus, then you are listening to someone from the earth over against the man from heaven. And that is foolish. Just read what Jesus says in the Gospels, and you realize very quickly that he doesn't talk like anybody else. His speech is different. He doesn't simply claim to be a great teacher though he is. He doesn't simply come to he doesn't simply claim to uh, be a culture changer though he is. He doesn't claim to be a revolutionary though he is. He's all of those things but he's more. He is superior because he comes from above. And he is superior because he reveals the truth of God, the truth about God. Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, affirms this, that God is true. Listen, there are there are many different views, conflicting views of what heaven is like, of what God is like, of how you must live in order to achieve heaven or uh, find heaven eternal reward, even if you think in heavenly terms. There's all kinds of different conflicting voices and views. Here's the difference. Jesus actually claims to be from there. Right? He's not just a fan of the team, but has never set foot on the campus. Jesus is from the place he talks about, and because he is, he can reveal the truth about that place. He's not just speaking secondhand. Even John the Baptist is second-hand, but not Jesus. Jesus is superior because he has the Spirit without measure. Every other person in the Bible who has the Spirit has it in a limited way and only to fulfill a certain function. At Jesus' baptism, the Spirit comes down on Jesus and rests on him. That isn't, it doesn't say that about anybody else in the Bible. And then here, John says that he has it without limits, without measure. Jesus is more full of the Spirit than any other person in history. And because he is, his words and his works reveal where he is from, they reveal that he speaks the truth. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony affirms that God is true, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, because he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son, and has given all things into His hand. Jesus is superior, because He has the love and authority of the Father. Negatively, it means that means this that. No one else that you will listen to, no one else that you will trust in, has the authority that Jesus has. So I want you to think for just a second, who are the voices that inform your life, who inform your vocation, maybe the way you parent, the way you think, the way you live? Who are those voices? If you are if you could go to bed tonight or if, there is, or if there is one person in the world that before you die you want to hear them say, good job, who would that person be? Whose voice would be behind those words? Jesus has more authority than any of those voices, than any of those people. And to add to that, he has the love of the Father. Jesus is superior to everyone else we listen to. And that's why John could feel good about stepping aside. Because he knew that Jesus was ultimately the one in control. That, in fact, John didn't even have a choice in the matter. He had to step aside. The script has more people to come, and John's part is done. If he doesn't get off the stage, well, there is no if. He's got to get off the stage, he's got to clear the way. What will make you effective as a person? What will make you effective as a mom, as a dad, as a teacher, as a nurse, as a manager, as a farmer, as a salesman? Your life is in the hands of a greater authority. Jesus is superior to every other voice and every other person. And until we see that, until we know that, we will be trapped By too high a view of ourselves or too high a view of others. And the reason we're trapped in those things is because we don't have a properly high view of Jesus. We must, to to die well, we need to have a good view of ourselves and a greater view of Jesus. But ultimately this, Jesus is superior because he offers life in place of death. Verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Whatever your stance toward Jesus is, it cannot be tame or neutral. There is no eh when it comes to Jesus. You are either trusting, believing, and obeying, or you are disobeying and not trusting. And notice that John equates those. Whoever believes has life. Whoever does not obey is under wrath. So, believing and obedience go together. In fact, in some ways, they're one and the same. Faith and obedience are tied together. And to not have faith is to not obey, and it means to be under wrath. There is no second place Savior. There is no middle ground. If you don't believe in Jesus, then the wrath of God remains on you. But that's, that's, really, a, that's, that's really a negative note. What's highlighted here is the fact that, that what Jesus offers is so much better what we already have. And the reason that you and I chase so many other sins, little ones like laziness, big ones like pride, the reason we give in to those is not because our view of our sin is so great, but it's because our view of Jesus is so small. As C.S. Lewis has said, we're, we're like little kids when offered a holiday at the beach, we choose, to play in the, we choose to play in the slums with mud. Come out of the alleyways. Come out of the slums. Stop playing with the mud. Come to Jesus. He is far greater than anything else we could ever have, want, or imagine. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that yours is a message of life and hope, and that until we hear it and receive it, and even sometimes, oftentimes, after we do, we forget it and we need to hear it again. Lord, forgive us when we aim to take center stage and when we think we are the main actor in the drama of life. I pray that you would give us the view that John has of himself, that all that we have you gave us, you give us, and that we are but here to play a part, and when our part is done, it is done, and our joy can be complete, and our joy is complete because our part was to point to you. Really, our part is to believe in you, to trust in you, the one, the only one Who gives life? So many voices offer it. So many marketers try to sell it. But the secret and joy of life is not found in our diet. It is not found in any essential oil. It is not found in exercise. It is not found in our sports team or in our wealth or in our work. It is found in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would believe in that name and live in light of that. We pray it in that matchless name, even the name of Jesus. Amen.